You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Today's sermon text is from Acts 6, 1 through 7. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. The twelve summoned the whole company of the disciples and said, It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company, so they chose Stephen, a man full of faith, and the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. And they had them stand before the apostles, who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. The disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. This is God's word. Good morning. Good morning. I'm Chad, one of the pastors here with King Cross. Do I have, do I have this on? Okay, good. Um, and I am so excited to be. It's a blessing to be with you. And I, I just wanted to say uh, briefly how grateful I am for this body that, that God has given us. That uh, you extended your, send your appreciation to us. Uh, I can just tell you it's a joy it's a joy to serve you and with you, alongside you. Um, God has gifted each one of you in, each, uh, in very specific and particular ways that I appreciate and I have loved seeing grow over the course of this last year to have a front row seat at the work of the Holy Spirit in your life uh, is truly a blessing. And, uh, and to see even the people in this community who have been impacted by the way God has used and worked through you to see uh, new faces here who have come in that um, are far from God and you want to serve and follow him. Um, it's, 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 we could not ask for more. And we continue to see that in this book of Acts from the beginning where God is bringing people into the church. And that's the kind of prayer we have for King's Cross. That's the kind of prayer we have for this body here in Raleigh um, to continue to see how God might work through the time that we have here, not only on a Sunday, but in the way which we live in the community. The way that we live at our workplaces, the way that we serve together as we serve our neighbors, and the way we demonstrate Christ's love to one another and use the gifts that God has given us as the body of Christ to serve and minister to one another. We're in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7. And if you have your Bibles with you or even open up an app, um, I encourage you to follow along with us. We will have verses on the screen. If you don't have a Bible of your own, uh, we, have, we have them here on the back table. We'd love to put one in your hand uh, as a gift from us. We've been in Acts for some time now and seen the church go through some things. And I'm going to readily acknowledge to you as I came to this passage, on the surface I was thinking, hey, okay, they're selecting some servants. A lot of people may, uh, may preach this, may come to this and say this is where they're selecting deacons out. But there's a lot more going on in this passage that I'm encouraged by. And I pray God would bless us all this morning as we look at 
how the church comes together in one of their first, they face trials, they face persecution, but really where, um, where the challenge, where the trial, where the threat is coming from inside and how they come together as the body of Christ to face it. So if you would pray with me this morning, I'm going to pray for the Spirit to be with us and teach us and speak through my words um, so that we would be blessed and learn and grow in Christ. Pray with me. Father, I'm so thankful for this body. I'm thankful for King's Cross Church. I'm thankful for all the visitors and those who you've brought to, to join with us week by week. Um, I'm encouraged by the way in which you show yourself faithful. And Lord, I pray that this morning, even as we open up the Bible, that you will demonstrate that same faithfulness that you have time after time, that we would see it evidently in the text and be encouraged in our hearts and our minds and in the way we walk after you. I'm thankful for the time we get to open up your word and grateful that you speak to us and ask that you speak clearly this morning and make us more like Jesus. I ask all this in his name. Amen. So there's a story that actually came out of a Dallas church many years ago. I don't know the very specifics of it. Uh, an illustration that was circulating about a church that decided to split and, and they came to a place where they fought over the property. Now, they couldn't decide which one of the two factions of this church was going to get the property, so they both filed a lawsuit against one another in the public court system. The court said, this is a denominational issue, we're not going to handle it, so they sent it back to the denomination to figure out. Well, the denomination made a decision, but during the, during the hearing, the church courts discovered that the conflict had actually begun years before at a church dinner, when a certain elder was served a smaller piece of ham than the child seated next to him. Um, sadly, this choice tidbit of news was reported in the local newspapers for everyone to read and laugh at. Uh, but it's really no la laughing matter. Um, sometimes really the smallest slights can build up into the biggest roots of bitterness and can defile a whole church. Stories of church splits and church hurt are way, way, way too common. Far too common. The enemies of Christ love to see the members of his body tear away at one another. And in this particular story, since the beginning of Acts in the first five chapters, we're seeing that the church is, that the enemy is live and at work to try to stop and halt the advance of the kingdom by the apostles and by the growing church. I mean, they see 3,000 members come to faith there within the first two chapters. And, and, and very quickly, persecution comes their way through the Sanhedrin and the other. It, it even says later that they were jealous of them because the attention that they were getting and gathering and the, the numbers that they were adding. 5,000 more in chapter 4 shows up. That's near 8,000 new converts at least, not to include the other times where it says they're adding day by day. We don't know what those numbers are. And then last, a couple weeks ago, we looked at where a little bit of trial entered the church in the form of Ananias and Sapphira where they determined to lie and deceive from within the church though they tried to perceive and put on a face and a front like they were being generous but they were lying about it just to to look good and that's still a threat to unity that's a threat to honesty and trust within the church our ability to know and see and love one another fully and to be known but now in chapter six the enemy has taken an opportunity to attack the unity of the church directly. But what we see here is that the church steps up. They step up to combat the threat to their unity. 
And they do it by stewarding the gifts that God has given them for this mission. They do it together, and they do it with grace and humility. Church, we combat threats to unity when we steward our gifts for the mission. When we do it together as God's community, and we do it with grace and humility. So I want to look at this particular story. I want to read through what is only seven verses, but so much packed in. And and look at really three different movements or sections to that story. And the first one is just in in verse 1, where the church faces a threat to their unity. In those days, as the disciples were increasing in number, there arose a complaint by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution. So as I already mentioned, the church is growing rapidly. Can you imagine the kind of infrastructure challenges we would face if King's Cross saw near 8,000 new members over the course of a month or two? Praise God for those trials, but can you imagine the problem? Listen, (laughs) social commentators Biggie, P. Diddy, and Mace told us mo' money, mo' problems. Now, Really, it's not about the money. It's about all the people that come along with the money because they chased it, right? But in this case, we've got tons of people and just sinners coming together in one place. Even though they are saved by grace, though they follow after Jesus, we are all imperfect people. And imagine 8,000 trying to get along. If we try to make a decision as a group within our membership here today, We'd see a number of opinions about how it gets done or a number of feelings about choices that are being made. We see that day after day. And this is no different. A complaint arises in the church. We see that it says a complaint arises. What is the complaint? A complaint arose by the Hellenistic Jews against the Hebraic Jews that their widows are being overlooked in the daily distribution. Now, this is not a new thing for the church. In the Old Testament, there are laws after laws, and God has a heart for the widow, for the orphan, for caring for those who have nothing, have need. God made provisions in the Old Testament where if there were those who had need and were, were, were needing to reap, this is a story you see in Ruth, evidently, where people who had plants and crops, they were told they were not supposed to clear the entire area, but to leave the corners, to leave space, to when they drop stuff, leave it, so that those who were without could come behind and collect for food for themselves. God made provision and he commanded his people. And matter of fact, most of the criticisms we see by the prophets are how they're being unjust and unrighteous and unmerciful to those who have need. And so that's no different when it comes to the church. But in this particular case, the church is sort of a new entity. It's coming together to form a way in which they serve what it says here, serve tables. In the next verse, we'll see that. But it's the daily distribution. Apparently what's going on is we see people have been, the church has been selling what they have to, to bring together those supplies to provide for those who have need. And there are widows who are collecting some form of meal or support or some uh, resources daily in the distribution. And the Hellenistic Jews have said, listen, our widows are being overlooked for the sake of Hebraic Jews. Now, what are the differences? I'm glad you asked. The Hellenistic Jews are... Think of those who have moved away for one reason or another to other nations within what was once the Greek Empire, now the Roman Empire. Uh, Alexander the Great comes through. Maybe you've heard about him in history class. He conquers. He, he does what's called Hellenizing most of the area. 
And that's why they're referred to as Hellenistic Jews. They have a lot of Greek culture intermingled. In that time, people would conquer a location and move part of the, of the citizens to another area. They'd give them a lot of freedom, but in intermingling and intermarrying, they had better control because they weren't all in one place trying to work up a revolution or work uh, back an assault to try to rebel and take over the conquest. So in this case, the Hellenistic Jews are those who are from other, na- other lang- nations. They mostly spake Greek. They had a lot of Greek culture involved. But you've got to think, these are Hellenistic Jews that came to Jerusalem for like various reasons. They came probably for Pentecost, which is where we see in the beginning the first conversion that occurs to the church. So they held the temple in high regard and the festivals in high regard because they took the time to travel from their locations to come back to Jerusalem. So they are highly faithful to God and his, and his commands. And the other part of that is um, you also had Hellenistic widows, which were likely people, they say, from areas who were far off. When they got to the end of their life with little support, they wanted to end their years in Jerusalem. And so they were also very vulnerable because they probably didn't have family with them. The Hebraic Jews on the other, ha- on the other side were those who were born and raised in Jerusalem and Judea, They spoke Aramaic languages. They were original, and they were born there, and they grew up there. Imagine, if you would, if people who were Jews who were born and raised in other countries today, like maybe born and raised in the U.S., decide they want to go live in Israel now. They'd stick out. They would have a lot of culture shock. There'd be a lot for them to get used to. It would be noticeable they're not from the area. And in this particular case, there were existing divisions because of it. Uh, the Hellenistics would worship in the Greek synagogue uh, versus uh, the Hebraic would worship in ones that normally spoke Aramaic or Hebrew. The Pharisees, actually, we find writings. Those are those religious leaders of the time where they actually refer to uh, Hellenistic Jews as second-class citizens. So they were treated as such. They were kind of on the outside, thought less of. They weren't original. They weren't authentic Jews. We don't know that there, in fact, was any kind of intentional harm being done to the Jews, to the Hellenistic Jews. But I think it's important to point out these differences and how the division falls because Scripture points it out. Why else would there be a reason to describe that this was a a conflict between the Hebraic and the Hellenistic Jews? I don't think the apostles had any ill intention. I don't think they were attempting to slight the Hellenistic Jews, I'll take them at their word that they were good-natured, but for some reason, whether real or perceived, the Hellenistic Jews felt that their widows were being neglected in the distribution. Some possible reasons for neglect that are legitimate, any combination of these, I'm just, and by the way, this is not here in Scripture, I'm a little bit of uh, kind of speculating, so I want to acknowledge that, but that the apostles were just, clearly in the rest of the text, it says they were really busy because they have 8,000 new members, and there's 12 of them. And the possibility is in their busyness, the practical administrations are being neglected. And when they're neglecting some of those kind of things like giving and serving the tables, there's a language barrier that could contribute to misunderstandings. I mean, what if there's an announcement at the time to get picked up food and when it was going to be, and they didn't know, and they didn't have those resources, they didn't have that support. We also cannot ignore the fact, and I'm going to use this phrase, but there are terms like implicit bias or systemic injustice. And these are buzzwords that are very 
politicize, but I want to hold them and carry them out in this context for a reason. Because I think it's possible that even in the midst of the church that's early in the apostles who walk with Jesus, that they have grown up in a Hebraic setting and they don't even recognize some of the preconceived ways that they treat the Hellenistic Jews. And even if they're not treating them that way, the Jews are perceiving it that way. There is a division that's natural in culture, which is causing, which is carrying over into the church. And when I say implicit bias, just note for definition's sake, it's a form of bias that occurs automatically and unintentionally, that nevertheless affects judgment, decisions, and behaviors. Thoughts and feelings are implicit if we are unaware of them or mistaken about their nature. We have a bias when, rather than being neutral, we have a preference for or an aversion to a person or a group of people. Thus, we use the term implicit bias to describe when we have attitudes toward people or associate stereotypes with them without our conscious knowledge. A fairly commonplace example of this is seen in studies that show that uh, when white people will frequently associate criminality with black people without even realizing they're doing it. Again, this has been politically charged today, but I think it's important to acknowledge that there is a division occurring along those lines in this early church. At best, they have a comfort and an affinity with those more like them, and that could have led to neglect or perceived neglect. And at worst, there's some prejudice that they don't even realize or not from upbringing in a prejudiced environment towards Hellenistic Jews. Regardless of the reason, the Hellenistic Jews feel their widows are being slighted. And let me just say for a moment, as I mention this, that given that that topic in particular is politically charged for us, I am not planning an exhaustive treatment here. Okay? I'm only mentioning this and referencing because of the context of the nationalities that are mentioned by Scripture. And I want to point to the fact, though, that we are not immune. We have to recognize that. Do you realize that from 1619, and I'm going to speak specifically about racial lines, 1619 to 1865, near 250 years of slavery was in America. Did you know in 1965, 100 years after the official end of slavery was when the end of Jim Crow, meaning the division, official laws were put in place that segregated blacks and whites, race in in America. That jobs, mortgages, homes were all determined and decided based on many of these laws and many of these biases. You can find today on YouTube, and I, I don't have it to show with you, where you can see interviews of whole communities talking about how they do not want certain people moving into their neighborhood. And it does not look terribly old, probably about the 60s. Only 57 years ago, people still alive today, and their parents and their grandparents would have been alive to see this in America. Our families, let's be honest, friends, our families, our souls cannot be unaffected by that. And I'm not advocating right now for any particular policy. I'm only addressing our hearts at this moment, okay? Like these widows, if someone comes to you with hurt or feelings of neglect, especially in our church, don't shut down the discussion on political terms. Never underestimate our ability to hurt others. We aren't immune to social pressures and biases. But I want us to fight for unity 
and to love others, which is what Christ demonstrates for us in his love for us. Philippians 2, 3 encourages us that in humility, we need to consider others as more important than ourselves. Let's always have that posture. And for those in here who see or recognize somewhere where they think that there's hurt or need, if you feel hurt or need, like the widows or like the advocates for the widows, I would, I would encourage you to come to the body, come to the leadership, come to the church. We don't want that to be perceived or not, real or just simply perceived. We don't want that to be the case. We want the opportunity to address like the church does here in chapter 6. And they do address it. But how do they do it? Look at verses 2 through 6. The church combats the threat to unity. I use that term because I'm like, man, they're making war on this. The evil, the coming into the church, they're not messing around. They step right up to the plate. In verse 2, the 12 summoned the whole company of the disciples, and they said this. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and wisdom, whom we can appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole company. Okay, so the 12 step up, and they make a declaration. They start this way. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to wait on tables. I want us to, I want us to know and recognize they're not saying the tables are beneath them. Not at all. What they are simply demonstrating is they are pointing the entire church to the mission that they're called to in totality, the fullness of what they're called to. And what they're telling the, the whole assembly is, we have a serious need with these widows, and we need to address it. But it would be wrong for us to completely neglect the preaching and teaching of the gospel for the sake of waiting on tables. That would be an imbalanced ministry for what God has given to us. What Christ literally before he left said, go and make disciples, teaching them all that I've commanded you. He said, I gave you a ministry of teaching. God created us, let's, let's recognize this, God created us both as spiritual and physical beings. And so in those terms, Christ came to secure our salvation for eternity. Make us right with God. That in his sacrifice, he wanted to tell the entire world, I have made a way. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have made a way to the Father, the Most High over all of the earth, who knows, loves, and sees you. Remember John 3.16? He loved the whole world. He loved him so much. How? How do we know that? That he sent Jesus to die so that we might know him and live. That's the gospel he said, go and speak. But that's not to be at the neglect of the physical because we are whole people. We are spiritual and we are physical. And when we have means and we have the opportunity like the church did to meet the physical needs of the widows, that is good and that is right for us to do. See, in teaching, we're renewing our mind and our spirit. The God, God is effectually teaching us and growing us to know him more clearly. But he's also told the disciples that the way that people will know you is by your love for one another. And if we read what James says about religion and pure religion, and his, he's the brother of Jesus, 
James 1.27 said that pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So he said that in the purity of the way we follow God, as our minds are changed and transformed, we, it, would be, it would not be full and whole as an individual if we then looked at those in distress, like widows and orphans, and ignored their need. He goes on in chapter 2 of the same letter, and James says, If a brother or a sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, stay warm, and be well fed, but you don't give them what the body needs... What good is it? So what we have is the apostles come in before the congregation and says, we have a need, it's physical, but we can't neglect the spiritual. And so when ministries get imbalanced like that, if we were to go wholehearted and say, let's cancel Sunday mornings, let's cancel any, any disciples, let's cancel teaching, and let's do complete ministry serving, we're going to do food kitchens, we're going to do storing up, we're going to give the physical needs. We will meet their physical needs, potentially. We might clothe them, we might give people the things they need physically in this world, but we would completely ignore the spiritual needs that are an ever-present reality. And we would, in fact, have them warm, possibly well-fed, maybe help them get a good job until they die completely separated from God. But if we go the other way, we're like James says, and we just say, hey, stay warm, be fed, but we don't do anything to meet and love people where they are. And so we want to be holistic. We want to meet people spiritually. We want to meet them physically. And the church here in this text wants to do the exact same thing. And so they come together first and foremost to for the mission and the gospel. And the apostles prioritize that and point that out and put it in front. Secondly, I want us to see that they come together as God's community entirely. It says that the entire church was brought together for the solution. Now, I don't know the logistics of that or if that's just kind of metaphorical or they're just saying, hey, I brought together most of the people. But I'm, trying to, I'm picturing a sea of 8,000 faces, you know. Peter's like, hey, guys, here's the deal. Regardless of how it got communicated, it clearly telling us that the congregation came together. And this is super important when you compare this to a kind of centralized authority that we want to avoid. We don't, the apostles didn't sit here and say, okay, we literally walked with Jesus for three years, so we know what to do here, and we're going to take care of it. Okay? Do you, can, I, can I say that's not what we want to be as a church? We want to see, as this church does, the entire community to come together to solve problems because God has gifted the entire community. How, how, how radical is it? Seriously, how, think about how radical this is. 8,000 brand new converts are getting brought in on the decision-making process. And it's because the apostles believed and trusted in the indwelled Spirit of God in them. That he knew and trusted the Spirit not people. And there's leadership inside and outside the church who are not walking by the Spirit. And I believe that the worldly leadership are going to walk that way. That's, that happens in your, in your corporation, and that, that's not to be unexpected. But if church settings for a, a pastor, for someone who professes to be one who walks after God, to instead be completely walking by the flesh and to hold power over the congregation to make decisions on their own is not godly, not biblical, and not evident in this passage. 
Instead, we see people worshiping gods of power, money, sex, feeding their appetites of their flesh, never being satisfied, and leaving a trail of hurt in their wake. Instead, this community comes together to steward the issue, to steward their gifts, to keep leadership accountable, which is what we want to be. You celebrate God's gift in, in pastors, and it's right. Ephesians 4 tells us he's gifted us all uniquely in certain ways. But we are also accountable to the congregation the way the apostles put themselves before this community. Men and women in positions of leadership in a church should serve like Jesus. Leadership in the church is not about authority. It's first and foremost about responsibility to Christ and to his bride. Now, by the way, I'm not violent. But if I had reasonable expectation that anyone intended to harm my bride, I'd want to choose violence because I love her. Or my kids, for that matter. The apostles, as an example, to bring the need to the entire community as good leadership is what we want to aspire to be. Rather than brushing it under the rug, rather than ignoring the issue, I would not want to be the pastor who knowingly abused the bride of Christ. Because the community coming together like this guards against gross sin, protects the vulnerable like the widow, and keeps leadership accountable. And they came together as a community with grace and humility. I mean, look at the apostles' response. They're not critical to the widows. It says that a complaint rose up. And how many times have you maybe complained or heard someone complain and the response was, whoa, you didn't do that correctly. Maybe you should do that differently. That's not what we see from the apostles. They didn't say, you're telling us the wrong way. You're having a bad attitude about this. You shouldn't be a complainer. We have 8,000 new converts and you're complaining. They weren't defensive. Hey, guys, we're doing the best we can. They weren't dismissive. The church is blowing up and you're complaining. They're not covering it up. And the church responds in kind. They're not dismissive. They see the issue. They hear the, the recommendation from the apostles and they and they. They love it, and they want to steward the gift to serve the body, the gifts that God gives to the body. Romans 12, 3 through 8 says this exactly for our church. For by grace given to me, I tell everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he should think. Instead, think sensibly as God has distributed a measure of faith to each one. Now, as we have many parts in one body, and all the parts do not have the same function, in the same way, we who are many are one body in Christ, individually members of one another. According to the grace given to us, we have different gifts. If prophecy, use it according to the proportion of one's faith. If service, use it in service. If teaching in teaching. If exhorting in exhortation. Giving with generosity, leading with diligence, showing mercy with cheerfulness. So even in this text of Romans, we see that God has equipped the body uniquely. All of us who are members of the body of Christ and the community together, how important it is for us to serve and to be known and to love and to care for the community out of the gifts that God has given us. Specifically, we want to look at two in particular categories of teachers and preachers, which the apostles are saying that they're committing themselves to. And then this aspect of serving and administration. 
And it's interesting because in this passage, Luke at least helps us draw a very distinct parallel. Because while we look at this maybe as a, as a connection the, the, to the office of deacon, it's not actually the office of deacon that they're officially establishing. But they are using the verb for deacon. If you're not familiar with this, there's a Greek word that is uh, diakonos. And there's a way, it's a noun, a title, and there's a verb for it. So if you're a servant who serves, see what I mean? Two minutes, two Noun and verb, English grammar exam, uh, test this morning. But in this case, they specifically say this. It would not be right for us to give up preaching the word of God to de- deacon tables. Instead, they want to support, they want to appoint seven to this duty. And then at the end of this particular passage, they say this. Uh, I apologize, I flipped too far. At the end of the particular passage, they said this, who we can appoint to this duty, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and to deaconing of the word. So everybody's deaconing here. Everybody's serving, but they do it in different capacities according to, as Roman says, the grace given to us. And what is the entire congregation? How do they respond? They respond by enthusiastically being pleased by this idea. The proposal pleased the whole company. This is very similar. It says they selected seven men. They wanted to appoint seven men. It's not any magic number. It was a very typical thing in Jewish culture. We see it illustrated even in Greek areas where they would have seven men administer over things. It was a pretty common uh, practice. At the temple, they might have a particular task that needs to get done. So they would just, by policy, say, let's get seven guys to take care of this and, and, and oversee it. Uh, but it did develop into a practice of wisdom to steward the gifts we have actively in the church. And we see it later being applied in the letters. And we see reference to um, Phoebe as a deacon. We see reference in, in, in the letters, the pastoral letters, to, to qualifications that we read this morning for what deacons should look like. And who they should be. And when we see this in this context, the apostles call to very specific qualifications. And who are the servants that they ask for? Well, they're the best the church has to offer. That's what they're saying. Who are the best ones we got? We want someone who's good reputation. People who who are trusted. We know the church would trust them with with administering gifts, for handling finances, for giving out food, for not keeping it for themselves. Someone that we know could handle this responsibility. And with someone who's full of the Spirit, they're also walking after Christ. They're following and obeying the Spirit in them. That's why in the church we're not going to say, hey, are you great with spreadsheets? I don't care if you don't like your wife. You can still serve here. you, you You have to be a whole person who loves God and he is gifted uniquely. And so in this case, full of the Spirit, followed Spirit, over following the flesh, and evident. Everyone knows this. Someone who's full of wisdom. They've demonstrated wisdom. Even though they're trustworthy, even though maybe they fall off the Spirit, sometimes people just, they don't have a way to noodle things out. They think, can't think creatively. God hasn't gifted people with the same amount of general wisdom and how to do things uh, in the world. It's just the way we are. I'm just saying and in this case, you know, I'm, I'm not running multi-billion dollar companies like Elon Musk. I don't have that kind of wisdom. It, it's, 
People act like stuff like that's easy, but everybody would be doing it if they could. <laughs> or maybe not. Overstatement. But in this particular case, we want them to be full of godly wisdom, full of the Spirit. And so the apostles say, these are the guys that we want to see assigned to that. And here's what they have responsibility to do. And think about this very specifically. They, in fact, are being brought in to guard and strengthen the unity of the church. That is no small responsibility. I mean, there's someone who we have a recognized need here in this very moment. But they're also someone who actively recognizes and looks for needs in the church to serve. They're proactive in that responsibility. In addition to that, they're not only seeing and recognizing needs, but these are people who step up, who are given the authority and the responsibility and the ability to, to, to meet those needs and to administer solutions. And they're trusting these seven guys, hey, we have a need, can you go serve the widows? And so how does the whole church now respond in verses 5 and 6? This proposal pleased the whole company. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. You note that Luke expounds only on his name because he becomes important in the next passages. This is a practice of Luke, if you didn't know this. Occasionally he'll like say a little bit about somebody extra. He'll probably show up later in the story. And Stephen is one of the first martyrs we have recorded. He shows up uh, preaching the word. He wasn't a guy that couldn't teach like the apostles, but he was uniquely gifted and godly. And in the next several passages, Stephen, and then another name here we see, Philip, are very critical, important figures in the transition of the church coming from just in Jerusalem to the Gentile world and outside. And by the way, if you're wondering who Gentiles are, it's all of us. And so Philip and Stephen were men who were um, proselytizing, a man full of faith. Philip was known, his nickname was Philip the Evangelist. I mean, if you're out there winning people like that, and that's your nickname, this man is out there, he's teaching and preaching. So you have full of faith in the Holy Spirit, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, not to be, well, never mind, Timon, Parmenas, I don't know why I had that thought come in my head, and uh, it was a Lion King reference there, um, and, and Nicholas, a convert from Antioch. Nicholas, significantly, actually, the only one listed as a convert, the term was actually in the, uh, in the passage of Greek, means proselyte, if you're not familiar with this. The only reason they would have been called that is because he was someone who's not an actual Jew, who became a Jew, and then met Jesus. Okay? And he's from Antioch. And think about this. This is a foreshadow because right now we're on the cusp of the gospel going from the Jewish world to the non-Jewish world. And Antioch becomes the hub of ministry and mission for the church. They had them stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So now we have seven men that are brought forward. Who are these men that are selected? By the way, they're all Greek names. They're Hellenistic. So now the church came together. The minority comes forward and says, we've got a problem. We feel like we're being neglected. The whole church says we want to take care of it. The apostles recommend, as which is a practice, hey, let's get. It would not be right for us to neglect preaching and deaconing the word. Let's get someone to deacon tables and serve these people. Let's get people we respect that we can trust with the responsibility. And the whole church came together and said, you know what we'll do? We'll get seven Greeks so that they know that they can trust that we're for them. We're going to take the best 
of their church, of not their church, of the, but of their group, of the Greeks who are among us in this church, and we're going to give them and trust them with the responsibility to also feed our widows. They went above and beyond, just like Philippians said, to, to think more highly of others than yourself. To not guard and protect like, okay, well, let's put someone in charge. Well, we've got to also have our own representation. No, 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 no. They said, let's give the entire responsibility, the entire oversight and management to the Hellenistic Jews. And they can do it. Because we trust them, and we want them to feel like they're being served too. And what happens as a result of their grace and their humility? What happens as a result of, of, of them stepping to the plate to meet a need? What happens as a result of this is verse 7. So the word of God spread, the disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly in number, and a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. God, Luke is quick to tell us here God, that God is at work advancing the kingdom and that this was a good move. They had a problem that came up. They didn't ignore it. The community came together, and they said, we're going to be a part of the solution, and we're going to serve these widows. And they loved one another because the world looked on the outside and said, y'all are crazy. And God, Jesus said, they're going to know who you are by, my, by your love for one another. And they demonstrated that, and God advanced his kingdom, so much so that a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. People working in the temple. Now, they're in Jerusalem, and this is not to be confused. Most commentators agree this, these are probably disconnected from the wealthy, upper-class priests who have been persecuting them. That they're estimated to be some 8,000 lower-level priests working in the temple. And, and not to mention the Levites that work there, which I think was more like 10,000. Okay? So these priests saw this community, heard the gospel because... The apostles didn't have to neglect the preaching of the word. And a large group of priests became obedient to the faith. Church, we want to steward our gifts and the gospel like that. We want to steward for the mission. We want to be focused on kingdom advance. We want to see God bless like verse 7, where, where, where the, the disciples continue to increase, that God's word is spread, and that Large groups of people of all walks of life, of all faith, become obedient to the faith in Christ because he is the one true God. And we want to do that by stewarding our gifts as King's Cross. Now, Aaron already made a, a statement towards this, and one of the ways that we want to actively do that has to do with how we look at our ministry and our stewardship of deacons, even among our midst. We have no deacons right now. But we want to, as a church, stay focused on the mission. We want to stay focused on the mission. We want to, as a church, guard and strengthen unity within our body. We want to recognize needs in our community actively and proactively seek and administer solutions that serve others. We want to steward God's gift to King's Cross. And we want to ask you to do the same. As a body of Christ, are you recognizing and seeing needs that are here? Are you being proactive in seeking out those solutions and finding ways that we can love and serve one another more fully? Not neglecting the spiritual, not neglecting the physical. We want to hear about both. And I can't say that Aaron and I are going to be 
great like the apostles to just totally receive feedback, but we will come around. No, we want to hear that. Uh, I, I, I'm, I'm not under any impression that I have got this nailed. Uh, I know and believe and have become, uh, can I just say, for the last year even more so convinced that God's Spirit in every single one of you is sufficient to guide our community to grow and know Jesus more. And he is efficient to do so as we trust him and as we obey him. And so one of the ways that we're going to be doing that over the course of even the next months is that we want, as you've heard these deacons and thought about this, we want to hear from you. I would venture to say it's possible that someone or some ones have come to mind as being highly qualified as someone who could be a deacon in our church. Someone who uh, exhibits these character traits that are mentioned in this passage, and they also are those who have actively gone out of their way to serve this church. And we, we aren't necessarily those people going to be asking them to do a lot more because they're already doing so much. We're simply honoring what God has already demonstrated in them and, and empowering them to do so because God has gifted us as a body and we want to appreciate that and steward that. Look, we combat threats to unity when we steward our gifts for the mission together. Together as God's community with grace and humility. That we love him so much that we would hate to see a mark on the gospel because of the way that we as a church handle decisions and criticisms and divisions within the body. We want to love like Christ, and we want to serve one another, and we want to see the gospel preached. We want to see people change to look more like him, and we wholeheartedly believe that as we steward the gifts, we can see verse 7. We can see God today spread the gospel that we can see him today increase our number greatly. Not too many weeks ago, we had someone that Aaron and I had the privilege of sitting down and hear her say, and I'm, I'm hopeful for her to give that testimony to you today, that she wants to follow after Christ. And I told Aaron after we walked out of that, if King's Cross Church shut down tomorrow, it was worth it. hope you feel the same way. And you guys are like, oh, shoot, am I giving and all that? No, no. What's a, what's a soul worth? <laughs> but, but we don't want to actively seek to stop. And so let's pray that God would give us wisdom in that. Let's pray that God would guide us into wisdom there. And I want us to actively pray, where is it that he has gifted us that we can serve the body of Christ together like the church demonstrated here for us? so that we can see that gospel advance. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your kindness. My God, thank you for the way in which you've demonstrated so much, so much faithfulness to us as your body. I'm grateful for this demonstration of uh, faithfulness by the apostles, for the way that you've shown us in the word that they came together as a community to love and serve one another. And my prayer is that as a body, we would do the same. Give us wisdom and discernment. Make us more like Jesus. We want to look like him more and more every day. And ask all this in his name.
turn now to a time of celebrating the Lord's Supper. This is a celebration for believers, for Christians, that those that that know Christ. Um, if you're if you're visiting with us, but but you know Jesus, we'd be happy to for you to participate in this celebration with us. Um, if you don't know Jesus, we would love to to share him with you as um, as we've been trying to all morning. Um, yeah, so a couple couple things for us to to reflect.